Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. The stigma around couples therapy is largely gone, at least in the United States. People are more willing than ever to talk with someone who can help them process their issues as a couple. And yet many couples reserve it only for when things get really bad. While they might recognize the benefits of a more proactive approach to couples counseling, the logistical headaches and frankly the cost make it something that they never quite get to. Ours is out to change that with their unique hybrid delivery model and novel approach to delivering group counseling sessions remotely. They seek to eliminate many of the headaches associated with getting help as a couple. In this episode, we chat with Ours co-founder Adam Putterman about the origins of the idea, how he found the right co-founders, how they have intentionally iterated on the product, how they approach marketing and much, much more. It was a great conversation. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And with that, let's go to Adam. All right, Adam, thank you so much for being here. Really excited to do this. I've been following what y'all have been up to passively for, for several months now and has just been really, I guess, in, in, in impressed with a lot of the things that you've been doing. So I'm excited to dig in. For folks that aren't familiar, why don't we maybe start with what ours is and maybe the genesis of it? Yeah, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. I think I mentioned this in our note, but I still refer back to the notes from your class, which is wild. I don't think there's any any other slides I've gone back to yet. But in terms of what ours is, I think there's almost like a ladder of how we like to explain it. I never know whether to start at the top or the bottom. But if if we're talking to a couple that we're working with, we're essentially a modern premarital counseling experience and platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the highest level, the way we view ourselves is as a relationship wellness company. So we help couples invest in, protect, and grow the most important thing in their lives, which is their closest relationships. Mm-hmm. What were the, I guess, what were the problems that, because obviously couples therapy has existed for a while and, and what were some of the challenges maybe that people had with that or problems that you saw as an opportunity to tweak or disrupt or whatever it is you, whatever language you use for it to tackle? Yeah. So many. I think the biggest problem was also just a large trend, which is there is an increasingly large number of people that want a proactive way to invest in their relationship. People understand the importance of it. And Mm -hmm. as proactive health in general has grown from a physical fitness and a mental health and a nutrition perspective, people want the same in their relationship. And couples therapy is not necessarily designed for that today in that a lot of the infrastructure and the accessibility and the number of people that do it are focused on more acute perspectives. And what we wanted to do... Navigating a crisis, a marriage crisis. Got it. Yeah. And, And because of that, it's overly destigmatized. So I wouldn't use the word disrupt at all because so much of what we do is within the space and in partnership with the existing space. But where we're starting and the biggest problem we're solving is like an accessible, non-stigmatized way to do this. And we want to push that even further to something that couples want to brag about. So Mm -hmm. completely flipping, flipping the model on its head. That was the first thing. I think a few other just very tactical things that came to mind from hundreds of customer interviews is ambiguity leading to fear. A lot of the existing way that people go about this experience has no clear start or stop or really even roadmap. So yeah. you just you, We heard a lot from couples like, 
it's amazing. I love it, but I have no clue what we did the last month and what we're going to do next month. So solving for essentially clarity that, that, that leads to that. And then I think the second thing there is probably just some big accessibility issues around. It's really hard to coordinate three people's schedules. And it's really hard to coordinate them physically, like getting three people in an office at the same time is incredibly difficult, especially for parents or, or, or just the older you get, that gets harder and harder. And then just a, a ton more than that. But those are kind of the big ones. Yeah, it's interesting because I can think of I have one friend that I admire tremendously who has had a they, they, they've just have always gone and they've gone for years and years. But he's the That's only great. one I can. I can only, he's the only one I can think of that does it. And to your point, I mean, like, I remember we did, we were around 10 years into our marriage. We, at his suggestion was like, stuff just builds up. It's not a crisis or whatever it is. But to your point, the scheduling was a pain in the neck. The lack, like you said, lack of clarity made it awkward because there was no natural, you didn't know when you were quote done. And so Mm. you basically, you had this, you had this just because you, especially when you're like more, when you're kind of a people pleaser, or you're non-confrontational, you don't want to fire, you, you have to fire the therapist basically. Like they don't, they don't tell you, I think we're good. I think we're done here. <laughs> and so, which I totally get. I mean, it's, it's their livelihood, but then also too, like, because of that, I think there's also like a cost piece too, because again, it's like, there's no start and end date. Whereas with what you're doing, you're telling them like, it's this long and this is how much it is. And so there's a lot of to your point, I think there's a lot of clarity. It make, that makes a ton of sense. How did you, okay, so you're, you're obviously, you're, you're, your background is not as a couples therapist, but I believe your co-founders is. Is that accurate? Yeah. So there, I have two co-founders. We started the business together. One of them is, is an incredible, incredible couples therapist. She's been doing it forever. She's probably one of the most widely known and well-respected couples therapists in the field. And has been was really like the expert in the room when it comes to all of this stuff. Yeah. How did you meet your founders and how did you decide? That's always one of the questions that comes up, I think, a lot, especially with like real early stage stuff, is like the advice out there is generally you're better off if you start with a co-founder or more. Mm-hmm. And but finding that person, knowing that they're the right, it's a lot like marriage. And it's like, how do you date them well and how do you decide this is a good fit? Like what what did you, what was that process like for, for the three of you? And maybe how would you advise somebody that was taking out coffee and trying to pick your brain on how to do that? This is like the number one question I get from people that are just starting out. Cause I think it's become widespread wisdom that people want to do this with someone. And everyone's like, well, how did yeah. you, how did you find someone? And it feels like an impossible question. Yeah. And on the flip side, if I have like 10 conversations with with friends that are starting companies in a week, at least seven of them are dealing with like critical existential to the company co-founder issues. I think we got really lucky in a few ways and in hindsight, we're very intentional in a few ways. I think that I met Jess via a, like the perfect mix of intentional serendipity, if that's a word, where early on I was just trying to meet every single person in this entire space, past and present. Mm-hmm. And she was trying to do the same. And one guy I met randomly on the internet through his newsletter and was like, anyone want to do a call? He introduced me to someone that introduced me to someone that introduced me to someone that eventually Jess and I met. And we got on the call. And at the time, we were both working on early versions of this idea from completely mm-hmm. opposite perspectives. I was focused on 
kind of like a product, almost social app mm-hmm. uh, type perspective. She was focused much more on like the experience mm-hmm. and the people side of things. And we each had written up like vision decks or memos and we shared them with each other and they were almost like plagiarized. It, it felt it was word for word, the exact same thing. And, and that was kind of a shocking moment. So we then tested out working together very intentionally for a little bit of time. We did several distinct and or encapsulated projects together to see what it was like to work together. Mm-hmm. And then we just dove in. We also did some of the questions lists that you can find out. Shortly after that, one of our advisors was the former CMO of the Gottman Institute. Mm-hmm. And we asked him, like, who's the best couples therapist in the world that has like interesting insights and ideas in the space. And he introduced the Liz, who's our, our third co-founder. We did the same thing, Liz, where we worked together. The long second date you mentioned, like we did with Liz. And that was before we were working together and could not be more aligned. Mm-hmm. I think in hindsight, though, the reason why I say we got lucky is there were a few things we didn't test for that we should have. And like, it's hard to replace like working together for a long time. Like we just yeah. got lucky that a bunch of things fell in place and worked. Yeah. But what I like to think about now is the two questions that I would want to ask are one, do, do I want to work for this person? Because mm-hmm. I think that's a way to hack at, do you respect them deeply? And then two, am I comfortable with them forging my signature on like a document without me reading it? Yeah. You know, it's been like, screw it. You sign the, the equity docs. I'm not even going to check what they are and there's a way to hack at trust and with both of with both Liz and Jess I I feel that way like if if ours is in, incredibly successful and we go our, our separate ways I would love to work for either of them yeah. and I don't need to review a document that they make to see if like I'm getting screwed or something yeah was there anything that you did that as you think back to it that that sped up the acceleration of that trust or the building of that trust whether it was an accident or not because you're um, right, thing to be able to, everybody behaves a certain way when things are going great. So it's kind of like, mm-hmm. do I trust this person when we're going to war kind of thing? Yeah. I think maybe a few things that were not done intentionally is one, we all happen to be very comfortable with early transparency and vulnerability. Like there was no, I'm not going to sit, can you sign an NDA for like my <laughs> idea? Sure. And, and then two, we worked on real things that required real work. Like there were late nights together and there were, it was real projects where people have opinions. You have to work on something where you're going to, where you're, you're going to have an opinion strong enough that you're going to fight for it. And then I think that's where it comes out. Do you actually work together? And I think a lot of people hack projects in a way that's like, sure, let's do that. Or sure, let's do that. And you're not actually testing out the hard part, which is we passionately disagree about something and can we find a way to move forward? Yeah. So walk through that. So you, you, you had, it sounds like you were exploring this space. You met your first co-founder who had shared values, but was going at it from a different angle. You've settled on this sort of hybrid delivery model. Like you're combining sessions with a a coach or therapist where you call them and then an online curriculum almost. How, what was that process like of like, I, I see an opportunity or I see a pain. Here's my co-founder. They see a different thing. We're going to run some experiments or whatever it is to hone in on this. Like walk through that whole process. Yeah, we, we could talk about this for hours because this is this was greater than 12 months. This might have been closer to a year and a half of just 
an insane amount of experimentation. If any, I think it's it's in many ways our biggest strength and biggest weakness because at some point you have to say we've experimented enough, like and and have conviction to move forward. And we experimented an absurd amount. We started out with a heavily, essentially, this is going way back. Like I don't even think we've really talked about this, but like the very first experiments we ran were just like marketplace concierge type okay. things, and we slowly increased more and more the amount of the platform driven side of the material. And a lot of these things were a lot of these decisions and experiments were actually like pendulum swings between what the customer wants and what the business needs. And they drove each other. So mm -hmm. for instance, like one of the great parts about the hybrid nature, obviously is the scalability, which is great from a business perspective, but on the flip side, it dramatically reduces the barrier to starting for a couple because they can get started much quicker and there's not the fear and anxiety that comes from going into someone's office. And there are sessions where they're alone. There's no one there, which is yeah. a, a, a huge barrier for a lot of people where they, they don't want, they don't want someone in the room all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm happy to dig into any of this, but we started as like a marketplace concierge. We then flipped to a group model where for a long time we had groups of couples on a, on a zoom together doing this together, which yeah. in, in hindsight, uh, people were obsessed with it. They loved it because there was this amazing sense of camaraderie yeah. and community. And you get to watch other people having a session live, right? Because they're on mute, you're on mute, and you see other people are giggling or having a serious conversation. Really yeah. special. Yeah. So hard to sell. Yeah. So hard to sell because people are I so afraid to be on video. Type of person who is comfortable. Yeah, that, that that's interesting. Yeah. So we, we, it was just it was too restrictive to a lot of people. And it was also, it turned the business into an events business, which I, I thought was a nightmare to run because it's hard to scale and systematize in any way because you're always working for the next event. So then we shifted more to the, the private model and went through a long exploration phase on, we didn't want to jump to building. So we were in notion, no code tools for a long time. Yep. figuring out what really mattered and until we finally landed where we are today, which had the balance of scalable and people so obsessed with it, they'll post on Instagram or Twitter that they just did premarital counseling. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the, the so the no code thing is interesting because I, in spite of the fact that there are all those tools available, I, it's rare in my experience to be pitched by a company that is fully taking advantage of that stuff. And I think it's still, they're, they're being underutilized. And to your point, I mean, like the power of that, like you can prove out who cares about what your tech stack is at the end of the day. Like you're proving out that, that the problem exists and that you've created kind of a solution for it. And who cares how you deliver it while you're figuring it out. Can you talk a little bit about, or maybe like to the degree that you think that was the right approach, maybe talk about why, like how, how far along, like what were you able to do using no code that maybe people aren't, wouldn't wouldn't mm. think that you could do and like how long were you able to go before you decided all right now it's time to move to a to a proprietary tech stack it's such a good question i was obsessed with this for a very long time like i used to give a bunch of like workshops on it because i think you're totally right people not just underestimate it but they dramatically underestimate what you can do there's arguably nothing if if anything you're trying to do is out there, you can essentially do it in a no code way. The only reason that you can't is when 
you're doing something truly new, which is what we ended up getting to, which is like a multiplayer mental health experience. Like mm -hmm. that couldn't be made on no code, which is why we had to shift. But in terms of the things you can do, I think the thing that always wowed me the most is the level of automation you can achieve with tools like Zapier and the level of like bespoke customization you can create by combining automation tools with email tools with flexible no code web development things, mm -hmm. right? You can just create an incredible level of customization. Can you think automation. of what, what's an example from your MVP or whatever you called it that maybe highlights that, that that's that's most representative of kind of the power of it? Can you think back to your favorite mm -hmm. example? It's tough because a lot of this stuff like isn't sexy from a customer perspective. You know, what's so great about it is the yeah. is the fact that you just get to walk away. I think one of the coolest little things we did for a little bit is we made like custom calculator-esque tools. Oh, no, scratch that. Sorry for the, the messiness. <laughs> I have a great one. Mm -hmm. This was my favorite thing. And I can't believe I've forgotten about it. I was obsessed with this thing. And in hindsight, it was a total feature, not a, a thing. But one of the little things we made, like one of the very first things I did was I made a little, essentially like chat bot letter generator for couples. So here's what you would do. You would come to the website and it, you would you would click a button. And when you click that button, it opened up a pre-written text to us, customized with like your name or something like that. So already you're like, Oh, that's a little interesting. It right. sends it to us. And then we would automatically send that person seven days of semi-personalized questions about their relationship. So for instance, like if you would describe, if you had to describe your partner as a plant, what would they be? What was the story of your relationship and emojis? And then some more serious, like what's something you love about a role model or parents relationship and want to copy stuff like that. Yeah. Then at the end of it, we created a custom app with their answers visually displayed as well and with explanations of the research behind why we asked each question that they could then send to their partner as a gift. I wrote wow. you seven letters and their partner could go through it. 100% no code. It was a combination of like a website builder like Card or Squarespace, Zapier, Twilio's, no, not Twilio, a Twilio competitor that's a complete visual chatbot maker. You don't need to know anything there. And then Glide, which is like a free web app maker mm -hmm. uh, and Google Sheets, whole thing. And we were able to create this like little automated gifting experience for couples that would have cost a solid amount of money to, to custom build. Yeah, totally. That's so cool. That's awesome. You mentioned the settling on the hybrid model. Like one of the concerns was, was scalability and the scheduling and all that kind of stuff. If I understand correctly... I guess I, I a question for, uh, on this, like, obviously the lessons, the example curriculums I've seen, you've got session on the front with in-person, you've got a series of modules in between around various topics. You got a session on the back end to come mm -hmm. up. Obviously those middle four sessions can be, are very tightly controlled because it's content. How have you thought about the scaling process with the kind of the front end and the back end in terms of like degree of latitude you give the therapist? Is there an hour's way of doing this that they must follow? How do you think about quality of delivery? I had a friend, for example, and this was, it was interesting insight. It was around like the remainder inventory business model. So like Ubers and things like that. His insight was that when it's a people driven 
when the inventory is people, there's question of like the quality of the person, because like, if you're like you mentioned with therapists, like they're booked up in a lot of cases for, for months. And so if they have all this free time to go on better help or whatever it is, like, are they, are they that great? so like, how do you, as you scale, think about like the quality aspect of it? Like, are they always going to be, are they going to be FTEs? If not, do they follow your curriculum? And like, how, how have you thought about the scaling aspect of it with, from a, from a, the, the person to person delivery piece? We have a very, very strong hours approach. The entire experience is incredibly crafted and supervised. Mm-hmm. And all the guides we have are really, really great. And we're constantly doing training, supervising, adjusting the experience, but it's, it's very tightly bound in the elements. There's a lot of like adjusting and personalizing, but the arc of the experience is, is very tightly designed. Mm-hmm. by by the team right now it's a mix of FTEs and part-time mm-hmm. and it will always be that way and as we grow we we plan to lean much more on the FTE side because we want people on the team and we want to pay really well and mm-hmm. we don't think the model that a lot of our competitors in the space use is sustainable or a good experience for the people working there so we're going on the other end of it which is a lot of the reason reasons why those those intercessions have to be so great, right? Because that's the only way that it works for the business yeah. is to be able to get scale and volume that way. And mm-hmm. at least to date, we've been able to get the win, 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 where we have really great margins as a business. Yeah. We pay above market rates mm-hmm. and the couples love it. How do you, you mentioned, obviously like... Y- you're, you seem to be very much like lean startup-y in terms of your ethos, in terms of like running experiments and doing an MVP and all that kind of stuff. An, another piece of that is obviously like tight feedback loops. How, how does that work for a business like this where you presumably have some form of like confidentiality, like in the session, like, so there's the, there's the feedback loop mm-hmm. where the person-to-person session. Then there's also the feedback loop where a lot of the interaction is not actually happening. It's happening with like the, the two couples talking to each other. Like how do yeah. you how do you learn and iterate in a model like this? It's such a great point. It, it used to be even harder for us because there was a period where the experience was like three to four months, mm. and it was just terrible because your cohort, the distance between cohorts, you can realize you were doing something wrong for three months, and you just lost three months. We've spent a lot of time working on this last quarter, actually, which is how we figure that out, and we've yeah. taken just a very intentional approach around north star focus for the product. Mm-hmm. Our biggest product goal by far is around memorability. The entire space right now is focused on like daily actions. We five minutes a day, whatever. We're focused on an experience that you'll remember 50 years from now. That is our like literal product metric. And we track memorable moments in the experience, hmm. which is when a action is taken that indicates something memorable occurred, like downloading a worksheet, mm-hmm. uh, some, something like that. So there's no actual data. It's not like I'm sitting there and saying like, oh, they wrote this. What yeah. we're tracking is like people are doing the things that indicate that they're having a memorable session. And that's happening always, all the time. Yeah. So there are really tight feedback loops there and also around features. But it's not something we do a really great job of yet, given that we're early and it's something we're trying to improve a lot as well, we go. 
it does seem like there's some interesting challenges too in terms of in terms of how you would capture that data. How do you think about onboarding in something like this? Because you've got they're they're, they're paying for the full thing, and so. But I would imagine that that first experience in particular with the therapist really sets the tone for how the rest of the thing goes. And so I know you have a kind of a pretty well-developed kind of product mind. So I would imagine that you're trying to balance like theory and what makes a good couple session, but also like, how do I design an ideal kind of first time user experience? Like, how do you think about that, that balance? That's such an interesting question. And I think like Liz and Jess, my two co-founders have really, and, and Tyler, our head of engineering, have really owned all of that and have done some really interesting stuff. One of the small things we've done is that that actually isn't your first experience. Your mm. first experience is the intake onboarding, essentially like quiz or survey yeah. form, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And we've iterated on that so much. And we get a lot of really great feedback on it because it's immersive and it's it's new, designed in a nuanced way. There's still some issues we're working through there. Like we're so early, there's just like a lot to improve, but we we really focused on that moment. And yeah. there's a mix of educating and entertaining or trying to provide insight and mm-hmm. clarity. And I think that's where it's been most difficult is that what's most clear is usually the least insightful and interesting. And what's most insightful and interesting is the most confusing. And Mm -hmm. finding the balance between clarity and insight in that first experience. Because to be honest, like the first live session with the guide has not has been so nailed by Liz and her team. Yeah. Because they're so great at providing insight and asking the right questions that that has not been as much of a problem after the early iterations of figuring figuring it out. Yeah. But where we do need to get better is nailing that first experience so great that you then go into that. Because there's the other issue of you can't just start this experience. You have to bring your partner in. You have right. to invite them. And then that opens up so many issues for drop-off or confusion and, and things like that. That's super interesting. You mentioned that they that you have a very strong point of view around the delivery of these sessions. What have you learned, I guess, in the last year and a half about either from your co-founders or from your research around that? That's I guess I'd be curious, like how you would how would you explain the hours point of view around either what makes a thriving couple or the ideal way to navigate these kinds of conversations? Like what what is your worldview? I guess, for lack of a better word. There's so much there. I think I'm, I'm debating whether to focus more on like the relationship side of the thing where I probably am not the best person to talk about it, but have a lot of strong opinions just personally yeah. as well versus sure. like the product side of things. Yeah. I think the thing we focused a lot on on the product is that our customer is not an individual. Our customer is the couple. Yeah. And the entire experience. I, I think we are truly the first and only multiplayer, to use a jargony term, mental health experience. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's why everything we've done is so different because there's no other experience where there are two people going yeah. through it at the same time. Yeah. And we really, really focus on that interaction. And <clears throat> I think the underlying point of view there is that the magic is happening when a moment happens between the two the two people, a moment of insight, a moment of vulnerability or sharing and a moment of change. And we want, we think that 
that's that that's really what we're focusing on is like creating those moments between the two of them. I think in terms of just my personal philosophical worldview of like relationships is that like there's there's nothing more important than preventative, proactive mm-hmm. and high intensity experiences that if you set your you, you set yourself up for failure by trying to create a massive series of daily habits and you set yourself up for success when when you invest in something intentionally mm-hmm. and in a meaningful way that you're going to remember and and act on forever has it created i just be and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to i i, I would just be really curious has it created I know exactly what you're going to ask? Has it yeah. created more pressure on you, like as a partner, like to I'm running a company that ostensibly, like, do you, do you feel any more pressure to like my marriage better be amazing? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, it, yeah, it's like a it's a very like long running joke. I'm sure it is for everyone on on our team. And actually, I remember there's a professor at Northwestern who's like one of the world's greatest experts in this space. And we went to his book release and he said in his book, I think it's, it's the dedication in his book is my wife finds it hilarious that I'm a marriage expert or something, which I always just thought was the perfect way to put it. But yeah, yeah there are, that's like a really tough thing, particularly early on. I'm totally fine being transparent with it because you there's also a matter of anytime you're focused on something, you, you become more, aware to both the good and the bad, right? Like you start noticing all the things you don't do that you want to do. And then that, that, that can be a self-sustaining loop if you're not careful to also notice the good things and and try and work on things. But yeah, Yeah. it's, it's a challenging thing. It's like, if you work at a fitness company, you gotta be, you gotta be in good shape. That's right. No, I, I did a, I did an exercise years ago with a friend, with a friend who was like a executive coach, I guess, for lack of a better word. And we honed in on this phrase, for me of like, I want to help people build intentional businesses and live intentional lives was kind of like my mission statement. Mm-hmm. And a very interesting thing came up. Like when, when I fast forward a few years and I'm doing the couples therapy thing, like I have had a very positive feedback loop by being very deliberate about architecting experiences and things like that. And mm-hmm. what I learned through that experience, though, was like, I was creating a tremendous amount of pressure to like, everything has to be amazing. And my wife was like, you know what? Like maybe we can just have a normal birthday party with like pizza. And we don't have, you know what I mean? Like can we chill out a little bit. So yeah, like I would imagine when you're just immersed in it all the time, like even thing, maybe like, she's like, she's like, do we have to have a conversation? Do we have to have an open conversation about this right now? Like I just made me, I don't, <laughs> I can yeah, see yeah, that. Yeah. Really interesting. You can do the wrong thing sometimes. Yeah. You're like, you know what? I know that I shouldn't, say this, but it's okay. I think you're totally right. And I can imagine the birthday parties you were throwing in. It's the exact same thing. Stupid. I, like I'd spend two, three days making a farm animal cake just because I, <laughs> I, and I didn't know how to do it, but I did at the end. And like, it's like, it works, but it's like at what cost, at what cost? And now you're a baker. That's and like, a baking my, podcast. And my, kids yeah. care? my kids do not care. Does anybody else care? No. But Ooh, like, see, that's the real insight is that it was for you. Yes. Yeah, and it, it wasn't for anyone else. A thousand yeah. percent, a thousand percent. You, you mentioned the, 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 I just be fascinated. Like what have you learned about from a product perspective? You have a unique challenge. Like you're, you're, like you said, you've got multiple people that you have to bring together. So like from an onboarding perspective, I imagine there's flows there with the 
obviously like there's the sessions. I'm really fascinated about like the in-between ones though, where it's like a couple is sitting and they're looking at a device that's guiding them through something. But a lot of what's happening is happening between them and doesn't even involve the device. And so like, yes, I would imagine there are some really interesting product challenges that you've had to navigate with that, that are really, really unique. Like what have you maybe learned from some of that? That that's it. And it's something we actually just had a product meeting about this last week where we're going to start testing out more of a three device thing because the crazy part about our experience is you have two people learning something from like a video, right? Then yeah. you have two people having a discussion, but it needs to be moderated by the technology. Yes. So how does the technology moderate the discussion? But then you also have them having individual experiences where they need to journal individually. Well, you can't do that on one device. So you go, do you go analog or do you do separate? Yeah. And all these things have just been experimented with. And I think our approach is like, do it one way to get some data quickly and then figure out what's going on. So mm -hmm. until recently, the moderated discussions we were having were just mm -hmm. a video, which was like a video with a timer on it. And it would have a slide with the question. And yeah. now, after doing a bunch of user testing, we've been able to build probably like a semi-first-of-its-kind moderated discussion widget within our platform that has all these tiny elements like where you place the prompt and like one feature our product team is about to ship is how do you balance that some couples are going to take an exercise and go way too deep on it yeah. and others are going to go way too shallow yeah and so we added this this kind of like personalization flow where you can you start a little shallower but then there's a let's go deeper button and then that reveals the next layer of the prompt or the moderation and it sounds obvious now in hindsight, but it, it very much wasn't no. at first. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the big things we're actually trying to figure out right now that we don't have figured out is a lot of couples will get emails that say that session took us five hours. Wow. And on the one hand, for memorability, like they're not, they're never going to forget that session. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, are they then going to churn through the churn because they're too exhausted to keep going through the program? And there's, there's disadvantages and advantages to that. And you would love sitting in on our or with our product team. There's just so much to unwind there. The thing I find the coolest is that moderation block because it's such an interesting thing to do because there isn't anyone there to say, stop, don't yeah. say that. Right. So yeah. it just has to be crafted perfectly well. I noticed I mean, like you've baked in a lot of, you've thought, it seems like you've given a lot of thought to the experience of it as well. Like I know you just shipped that music widget thingy to create the right. Yeah auditory space, I guess, to have productive conversations. It's, it's really, it's really impressive from a, from a tech standpoint, as I'm sure you have seen, once you move away from like the low code stuff, and now you're using proprietary tech, how did, how have you managed like code debt? How have you managed to stay nimble and agile with all of these different experiments when you move away from some of those tools? And now crud builds up, like how, how have you seen, cause a lot of companies I've seen they, they just slow down because um, it's like concrete in a way that you got to blow yeah. up versus when you're doing MVP stuff that isn't in like... You can stitch it. Yeah. You're just, yeah, yeah. yeah. How have you, have you navigated that process? Yeah. Well, this is also a good moment for like a quick shout out to Jess and Tyler. I don't, I don't work on product at the team. They do. And they've done a phenomenal job. So everything I'm saying is like secondhand. One of the things that Tyler, I think, did a really great job of and 
actually going a step back, I think a lot of this is the benefit of using no code, right? Like we didn't have a product for at least a year because we were building it in this no code way. So we had really strong opinions on how we were going to set this thing up. And then that combined with the fact that Tyler has so much experience building consumer products that actually that scale to millions and millions mm-hmm. it was like the right combination of setting this up. Like we had very opinionated things around the couple being the customer and stuff like that and, and where things go that have, that have really helped avoid a lot of those issues. And he does a really good job of just thinking about those things before we just jump into building something. We, we rarely are just, we're rarely shipping something that didn't have a lot of thought behind it. Yeah. Makes sense. I want to pivot a little bit like to some of the, the company building stuff that I've seen. You, both you and your partner, at least one of them from what I've seen, you've been really disciplined about this idea of like building in public and sharing kind of the journey as you're going along. I'd be curious to, to hear maybe what the rationale was behind that, maybe the benefits that you've seen from doing it, what you think the role is of the founder or co-founders doing marketing kind of from their personal brands in addition to the company. What have you learned mm. kind of going through that process? It's such a funny question because we literally had a conversation about how we were bad at this recently. So I, think I, you are, it, I don't think you are at all for what it's worth. I think you're, it, it's, I think it's, well, there's two separate things here. Liz is, is practically a public figure. Like she's incredible at this. She has this amazing personal brand. And mm-hmm. I think that it's something she does very naturally, naturally and very intentionally and has, and it is, is really great. From my perspective, at least, it's something that doesn't come naturally at all. I really don't enjoy it. I actively dislike it. But there were clear benefits to it. And I managed to find a way to do it in a way that takes like less than five to 10 minutes. Like That's why I find it to be a funny question because I wouldn't self-describe it as as good. But Mm -hmm. I just try to post once or twice a week with something interesting that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's basically it. We've seen a ton of benefits from it, though, particularly on the hiring front. We just it gives people a little taste of who we are, yeah. and it's made partnerships a lot easier because you have a track record. I think one of the things that I think it's most important to rephrase. I think the biggest value you can get out of it as an early stage company is credibility. There were so many times early on where we'd reach out and we're no one and nothing. And and so it's a very awkward and uncomfortable conversation. And now that we have like this trail of our thoughts and activities, Mm -hmm. it makes that so much easier. And that has been such a relief to be able to partner more easily with other interesting and great people and companies in the space, as opposed to having to like fill that gap every email, which is, which is very awkward. I think the thing I've struggled with on it, and I'm curious for your thoughts on this is like whenever I review the the slides, the thing I regret is not having a more intentional approach to it and saying like, all right, I'm going to go back to writing like a personal newsletter of personal relationship insights or track my journey as a young dad or something. I'm curious how you balance the time versus not and really just Picking yeah. something good enough versus strategically perfect. Well, first of all, the fact that you're doing it at all, I think is huge. I think that there's a model that I've seen a number of folks do. The team at Levels Health is really good about this. The team at Synthesis, 
which was a previous episode. They're like an online learning platform. They're really good at this. Yeah. When you have a co-founder model, and it seems like you did this because you've got the person who's sort of the domain expert in the space and who is naturally out there and, and loves doing it and all that kind of stuff. Your role, I mean, you can do it however you want, but like your role can almost be more about like company building and about like, what are the lessons I'm learning about building a business and attracting team and raising money and how do you maintain a sense of urgency and how do you ship quickly and all that kind of like, so like you could have, like, if you sit down and you're like, all right, what are all of my quote unquote content pillars I could identify? And like, then you can sort of divide and conquer. And she owns a lot of the theory behind relationships and stuff like that. And then you, you can own some of the company building stuff. Cause that's probably something that you maybe feel a little bit more comfortable doing and probably, or, and then it's just about like, you're documenting more than you are creating. Mm. You come out of a meeting and it makes you think of an interesting thing. You can abstract the principle from it. And then that's something that you can queue up. And, and I think in terms of like how you're, how you're doing it now, like five to 10 minutes a week, there's nothing wrong with that. Like that's when using automation and scheduling and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think that gives you, cause I think especially in your case, like it, it depends, you, you have to think about who your audience is, but in your case, I have to imagine the type of people that would resonate with company building kind of content are probably pretty type A people, pretty achievement oriented type of people. They have the disposable income to spend on something like this. Yeah. Um, we don't you know, want the like, tech early adopters. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. So I don't know. It's a good point. We have a lot of that stuff we like rigorously write down internally and mm-hmm. it'd be fun to experiment with sharing it. Yeah, another another good one to look at is how Eight Sleep does it. There, Matteo, the founder of Eight Sleep, is pretty good about, and he does he does share like, I, I, if I if I were to identify his content pillars on his behalf, it's like there's a definitely like a biohacking piece to it because he is living the brand that way. But a lot of it is about company building now, and like these are our values, and here's how I make sure that we have a sense of urgency and blah 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 blah. blah so. That's great. But I don't know, man. I would encourage you. I think you're doing better than 90% of founders in terms of just your willingness to to, to do it. You mentioned a paper trail. You, you've managed through the process of kind of sharing all this stuff. You've landed a lot, like relative to your size and relative to how early you are, I think a disproportionate amount of earned media in particular. And I've seen stuff on the Today Show and fatherly guest posting and all that kind of stuff. Like has there been a disciplined approach to that or any, any advice you would give to founders that want to try to earn more press? It's, I feel like it's a hard topic to touch in a slice. We've had, particularly for our space, because we think there's just such a huge content opportunity or, or a branded content opportunity in this space. I think the biggest piece of advice is, is have a co-founder that's absolutely incredible at it and well-known and just a really, really insightful, great writer. Like Liz is just, I think one of the things we found when we were going through working with a bunch of writers is that the best writers have something to say. And that's the hardest thing to judge for because they can be an amazing creator, but if they don't have something interesting to say in our space, which is really difficult to do because there's just so much relationship content, that's the most important thing. I think my biggest advice is probably to ignore it and not focus on it unless you're going to go all in on it. Mm. We did a little bit of getting stuck in the messy middle and I regret not giving it all of our attention or actively saying, ignore it. 
Interesting. Along the same lines, like you've done a number of we, we before we before we hit record, I called them stunts. Let's call yeah, them yeah. experiments. Let's call them experiments. But like it's yeah. been been really interesting. Like you you first of all, you all y'all ship a ton of stuff. So like you did, you mentioned long second date. I saw that like the event you did in New York City, which it sounds like there's a product kind of coming out of that potentially. You did the photo booth thing, the anniversary letter thing, the of the seven the gift that you mentioned just on earlier in yeah. here, even like the how to find a couples therapist.com. Like, like it is an SEO play. You were right about that yeah, too. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like also just a legitimate email. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so what's been your approach with that or what's been the, I guess the logical thread behind all of these experiments that one looking at it from the outside might think like, this is, I can see how it's sort of tangentially related to the product, but isn't the product. Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's funny because they're not tied together at all. There, right. There's like the underlying, there's an underlying thing that unites them, which is we try to experiment before we invest a ton of resources. And mm-hmm. what we're looking for is low hanging fruit or ways to potentially, maybe the best way to put it is a low resource bet with infinite upside mm-hmm. that lasts forever. So everything you just mentioned is going to live on the internet forever and is now just like a potential vector to luck and serendipity, right? Like the long second date is one of my favorite projects we've ever done. It has never gotten any attention. We've tried Hmm. marketing it. No one looks at it. It's so interesting. We sent four couples on a second date to an all day couples therapy retreat where they talked about sex and intimate, like spirituality, all these things. I think there's a 10% chance that at some point in the next 10 years, it goes viral. Maybe yeah. 1% is better. And we kn- it's just there now forever. The yeah. how to find a couplestherapist.com, exact same thing. I sent that email like two dozen times and I was like, throw it on the internet. Maybe some blogger with an audience one day finds it and it goes viral. Yeah. So that's the first layer of it. The second layer of one way to look at those is those were all distribution channels that we were trying to test. Sure. So how to do a couple service thing is like a little SEO test. The long second date was our way of testing. Should we go all in on hero content? Like becoming a, that being our main distribution channel. The in-person event was like, will in-person events work for us? Mm-hmm. So they're really just channel tests. Yeah. And the way we approach channels is, is there low hanging fruit here that we can capture for a very low amount? Cause we don't mm-hmm. want to regret. We don't want to two years from now put on our first in-person event, see that it blows up sales and be like, oh my God, we could have tested this in a weekend. Sure. So we try to test things in low hanging fruit. And then we say, okay, do we have the conviction or what would we need to have conviction to try and crack this channel for three to six months? Is there you, you implicit in that, like you mentioned events, like lots of companies try events and events are like, hey, usually it's like, hey come to this bar and we're going to give away drinks and some swag or whatever it is with each of these things. It does seem like you, you or your team, you and your team have a knack for finding angles that are Mm. more creative than what most people (laughs) would do. Is that a conscious thing or is it like, is there any, any tools or frameworks you've used to make that more likely? Or is it really just like, I just happen to have really brilliantly creative people on my team. We always say we are, it's funny when we talk with people, you know, about, oh, how can I help ours? Or how can I, we always say we don't need ideas. We're like a very creativity and idea centric team. And we have too many ideas. Yeah. Where we, and 
we've never had a problem with that. So I think it's just a lot of members on our team are very creative and very angle driven. And then two is we're not selling accounting software. We're selling something that is also just naturally very interesting. So mm-hmm. all these, uh, we have the largest backlog of like weird ideas. Like that in-person event was so cool because coworkers yeah. would come and sit there for two, three hours having a conversation in the park. Such a thing. The long second day was obviously designed to get PR. I will say it's it's comforting or it's validating to hear you say this because none of these went viral in any way, which shows you how hard it is to like well, it is, have I mean, that happen. It is hard, but I just yeah, I, I just it's one of the things I admire about what you're doing is, and I, I think we talked about it in class is like everybody there is so much pressure to conform and to round the edges off of your marketing or whatever that you do, your product everything fights against you to be, to be creative and to be novel and to be weird. Like, especially like weird, mm. like there's a, to your point, there's a 1% chance this will work. If it works, it'll be like you said, like unlimited upside too many companies, teams, whatever, I think are just afraid to try. And I just, I, I admire that you are willing to experiment and willing to tinker and just sort of see what works and that kind of thing. So. It's really tough. I think one of the things we've struggled with is we've wanted to be way more opinionated. And it's just hard to know that you're going to make people angry sometimes. And we found like a little bit of a balance where I don't think we're boring by any means. And we have opinions and we put ourselves out there. But there's a version of ours that is like way more... Like uh, Esther Esther Perel or whatever her name is. Like She's great. Yeah. I mean, she... She's opinionated. (laughs) Yeah. She did such a good job of insightful, opinionated philosophy of life. There's a version of ours that looks a lot more like that, where we're saying these types of relationships or this approach to relationships is terrible. And that's the focus. That's not what she's done. That's a mischaracterization of you. But I'm saying that is what we could do and it it would do well, but it's really hard to do. Yeah, totally. You've, you've managed, I, I, I don't know if the, what you would attribute it to, but you've managed to raise from some really well-known investors and you've got Serena Williams and you've got Andy Dunn and you got all these people. What, I don't think, I mean, like you came from a consulting background, so I don't think that you had a fundraising background. What did you, what was your fundraising journey like? And what, what do you attribute your relative success in that process to? Anything um, you in that process? So just ran fundraising for us and did just runs and does such a phenomenal job. I think a few things that come to mind is one, Jess is a uniquely strong relationship builder. And she's incredibly, incredibly passionate about what we do and wears it on her sleeve. And I think that that is, I can imagine you would know better than me, refreshing from an investor point of view. Like We're very much not the mercenary team. We're the missionary team. I think two is that there aren't a lot of companies fundraising for what we do in our space. So I think a lot of funds saw this as a differentiated bet in the mental health space. And then three is we picked a space and a vision that has, to our earlier point, unlimited upside. Like we want to own relationships and the trust. And and if we can, if we can own the trust with a couple, there, there's no limit to what we, what we can do here and the amount of things we can go there. And it starts by just owning this one tiny moment, which is a really attractive beachhead, I think. Yeah. And then lastly, I, I think we've been able 
to build and I've been incredibly lucky to build a really, really great team. And I think that that's been a really attractive proposition to people on the outside. It was not an easy journey whatsoever. It was incredibly difficult, particularly early on. Getting the first check, it's like the hardest. It's the hardest thing. You go through so many no's. It was heartbreaking and it was very stressful. And it's gotten better and better since yeah. then. So that's great. Well, I, I want to be respectful of your time. You, you mentioned Beachhead. You've mentioned that you want to own relationships. What is the, what is the future of ours look like? Yeah, this is our favorite question to talk about. We want to serve every engaged couple in, in the country. There's 2 million couples that get married every year. We're not going to serve 2 million couples, but we want to just create a movement of this proactive relationship health. The biggest request we get from customers nearly all the time, nearly every day is, can I buy more sessions? Can I do this monthly? We don't focus on that right now because that's not what we're focused on. De-risking at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it, it's nice. And so we're going to become something that you do ongoing, right? Yeah. We're never going to be the five minutes a day thing, but you're going to keep doing hours. Sure. Then we're going to offer other life stages. It's not just going to be engaged. It's going to be expecting parents. That's the hardest part. New parents are... I believe I could be misquoting the study, but I believe are like the unhappiest oh my couples God. in I mean, the that's world. Most three year, of the that's, time. Three, that's three years of like surviving. Barely, right? Yeah, and yeah. so we'll offer other life stages like new parents, like moving in together, all that stuff. And then eventually we want to offer all closest relationships. So it's not just you and your partner, it's you and your co-founder. That was actually yeah. our second biggest request that we don't offer is like co-founder sure. programs. We want to do best friends. We want to do roommates. We get a lot of requests for parent-child, like an intense bonding connection experience to better understand your sibling. Yeah. I like that. So we'll eventually be truly the relationships company. We'll be there for you and all your closest relationships from start to finish and from, from ups and downs. We want to also offer just full therapy, be able to serve acute couples as well. Super cool, man. Well, again, I really, really appreciate you taking the time. It's been super fun to watch your journey. I know it's obviously not always been easy, but it's been really, really impressive. And I just, I love, I love how you have approached company building. I love how you've approached experimentation. It seems like you all have a lot of fun with. A lot of fun. Yeah. So congrats. For folks that want to learn more about ours, where, where can we send them? withours.com, W-I-T-H-O-U-R-S, or just email me at adam at withours.com. I'll do a big shout out for your class if you're still teaching it. You I'm know, on a hiatus right now. Pound. Yeah. What's that? You're not? or I'm on a hiatus right now, but it, it, oh, it, okay. it but potentially, but no, but, but go ahead, plug away. <laughs> just great class, pound for pound, like best impact. It was only half a class, impact time ratio by far. And it's one of those, I think my biggest takeaway from it is like, worst case, just start making stuff now because two years from now, you'll be so happy you, you did. And thanks for having me on. This was a fun conversation. It was, it was nice talking in the, talking about the details. Yeah, man. Really appreciate you taking the time and it was good to catch up. ideas on how to disrupt your own organization and how Manifold Advisory might be able to help, visit us at manifold.group advisory. And if you're looking for a truly value-added investment partner, visit us at manifold.group ventures. 
If you found this episode helpful, we would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much as always for listening. We'll see you next time.